Okay, let's pray and then uh, before we look at God's word. Father, we're approaching your word now, so we just ask you to bless as we see what you did in the times of the apostles and what you're still doing today all over the world, moving in your gracious mercy upon the lives of so many millions of people. And here is the beginning of all of that. And so we just uh, ask you to give us insight and understanding both in what can be done and what we can expect and how the world really works, Father. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we're in Acts 17, and we are continuing our look at first century evangelism, really. And, and as we have seen, and with what is coming, um, what you find out is there's this great work of spreading the good news about Jesus, but it's, it's got two things going on at the same time, and that's the way things are always. It, there's a lot of fruit. There's a fruitful ministry going on, people coming to Christ, and there's opposition. There's always opposition. When I saw that um, message this morning from the person that had a contact with Kabul, that little church said, well, we're going to meet anyway. So um, they're literally laying their lives down on the line. And they know. They know they live in a country where that can happen. So um, the, the Syrian church, amazingly, has been booming during the time of uh, you know, the Islamic Empire and all that stuff they were trying to build over there. And um, Christians have been slaughtered in Syria and the church is growing. In fact, they say the church's fastest growing places in the world right now are Iran and China, where the most oppression is going. So um, God works that way. It's an amazing thing. So you'll see variations of that going on here. And we saw last week in Acts 16 where Paul was beaten without um, a trial and all of that, thrown in the stocks and all that. So. Amazing things are happening here in the book of Acts. Churches are getting started, people are coming to Christ, and opposition is fierce. So today uh, we're leaving the story we looked at last time, the, the planting of the church in Philippi, the first European church plant. And we're on Paul's second missionary journey here. And so Paul and his team started in Philippi, and Luke, who wrote the book of Acts here, he devotes a lot of space to that, what happened in Philippi. I think because of the two households that came to Christ, Lydia's household and then the Philippian jailer, whose name we don't know, but I like to call him Marcus the jailer. But um, because he's telling those two stories, we got to see two really important truths, key truths connected with spreading the gospel. One in Acts 16, 14 is that the Lord opens the heart of those who are going to believe. And God does this work in the heart. And we've seen that. And then the gospel message we saw in verse 31 of chapter 16 when the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And, and Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The, the, that's it. Those two great things that God opens the heart. And when he does, people put their faith in Jesus. And that's what saves faith in Christ. That's all there is to do it, to it. Now, um, we talked also about what real faith looks like versus a kind of a fake faith or an intellectual faith or an emotional faith purely, but this is real faith, trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And um, those two statements are really important theological truths that are undergirding all of this history that Luke is giving us about the early church. So he tells us a lot in, about Philippi because there's so much to learn there. Now, he was also there, so he was a witness, so he's probably got more to say uh, just on that basis right there. But the doctrinal statements are the keys to that, the two believing households and the two truths that came from those stories. So we also saw in Philippi, Philippi that Paul and Silas were beaten 
with rods rather mercilessly and, and then uh, by a government who was too cowardly to stand up for justice before a mob. Mob rule is the way things are often done uh, in opposition to the gospel and um, that was happening to Paul as well. And Paul, if you remember, he agreed to leave uh, but the church did get started there and it was growing so um, that was all good. So now when we come to Acts 17, Luke is exploring what happens to Paul in three more cities, very important cities, Thessalonica and then Berea and then Athens. So all three of those cities are going to come about in um, chapter 17. Luke gives the most space to Athens. Why would he do that? Well, if you know anything about classical history, I mean, Athens is the heart of Greece and Greek culture and Greek philosophy and all of those things. And it, and it was a great empire. The, the Athenian empire was huge and very powerful at one time before Paul's time. By Paul's time, it was just a, a city as a part of the Roman Empire. It wasn't anything that special. But it's a big city. It's an important city. So maybe because of its reputation as the center of Greek thought, what happens there is really important. Plus, Luke tells us about Athens because Paul, he gives us Paul's message to them. So that's kind of important and that'll be coming up. Next week, Athens. This week, this week, Berea and Thessalonica. Okay, so I think the common thread of those three cities we're going to be looking at in Acts 17 is simply the reaction to the gospel and, and how different it can be in different times and different places. So you'll notice in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, that the missionaries after they leave Philippi, they keep moving uh, till they get to Thessalonica. So verse 1, it says, when they had traveled through Amphili Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So it sounds like they didn't stop to preach in Amphipolis and Ap Apollonia. Probably in keeping with Paul's strategy, which is cities and synagogues. We've talked about that multiple times. Cities and synagogues. Key cities. Because if you get the key cities, it's going to radiate out from there. And he picks cities that are along major highways, major travel routes, and then you plant a good church there and it's going to radiate there. So you don't have to hit every little town along the way. You don't really have time to do all of that. That church will eventually take care of those towns. So he moves on um, to Thessalonica. So that's his plan. Thessalonica is the capital of Macedonia. So it's a major city, a major business center, probably in that whole part of the world, Greece and Macedonia, only Corinth really rivals Thessalonica. So it's a major, major city. It sits on the Ignatian Way, one of those Roman roads, these amazing Roman roads that connected the whole empire. So plant a church there and the gospel will radiate out from there following the roads and the trade routes. So evangelism in Thessalonica is textbook Paul. What's, he, what's the first thing he's going to do? Go to synagogues. Good, you got it. That's right. So he's going to go to the synagogue there. Philippi didn't have a synagogue. Thessalonica has a big synagogue. Okay, so um, he's going there. He hopes to win his people, obviously the Jewish people, to Christ. But he also knows that they've been getting the best response from the God-fearers, Greeks or Gentiles, who worship in a synagogue but have not fully converted to Judaism. They're attracted by the god of the scriptures and so they're, they're there and they seem to respond to the gospel the most. So he starts in the synagogue and he's given more opportunities in, in Thessalonica than he is in most places. So let's read verse 2. According to Paul's custom he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. 
three Sabbaths. He usually gets beaten up after the first Sabbath. So <laughs> this is like, this is really, they're listening. They're listening. And they wanted him to come back and back again. So he's giving a really great opportunity here. It says he reasoned, he explained, he gave evidence. So he's giving lectures, he's answering questions, he's engaging with people. They wanted him there. So, um, you know, all of us, you should take from that verse there what he did. All of us should be able to reason and explain why we believe what we believe and the substance of our faith. We should grow in that knowledge. We should be familiar with arguments and reasons for putting your faith in Christ. So Paul also focused on key gospel elements, of course, the suffering of Jesus and the resurrection. So, you know, for Jews, the suffering of the Messiah has always been sort of a point of difficulty in grasping how that could be because Messiah to them is a military conqueror, a leader, and he is that in the Old Testament. He's also a suffering Messiah in the Old Testament. And how do you put those things together? They kind of ignored the suffering part because how, how do you tie that in? And uh, in fact, some rabbis even taught that there were going to be two messiahs because one messiah clearly is dies and another messiah is reigning over the world forever. So how do you do that? Well, we know because the messiah comes twice. Once to die for sin and once to come back and reign forever. So all of that's going on. So um, he's explaining about those things, the suffering of messiah and then the resurrection of the messiah. First, he has to make atonement for sin. That's in the Old Testament too. So the cross and the empty tomb declare uh, Messiah comes two times. So by the third Sabbath, um, a lot of people want to follow Jesus in this synagogue. We don't know how many um, or what percentage of the synagogue attendees decide for Jesus, but it was substantial enough because, um, well, Luke's language here, we're really dependent on his terminology. He doesn't give numbers, but he says things like, verse 4, some of them were persuaded to join Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So my translation says a large number of the God-fearing Greeks. That, that phrase, a large number, Luke uses that in his gospel and it's usually translated a multitude. So I mean we're talking about a lot of people, more than two, right? And more than six. I mean, it's a, it's a large number of people. A large percentage, I would think, is the best way to say that, of these Greek, God-fearing Greek people. So we're probably safe to say most of them came. And then he says some of the Jews, too. That's the some of them at the beginning of verse 4 there. And then a number of the leading women. So uh, my translation says a number. The actual Greek word there, it says not a few not a few. So not a few is quite a few, I guess. So, so they, they came to. So some Jews, a multitude of God-fearers, and more than a few leading women. So that's pretty awesome there. The leading women would be noble women or prominent wives of important people in the city and things like that. So, um, so they're worshiping at a synagogue and they hear the gospel and they want Jesus. Now, that happens all of these people believe. Now put yourself in the position of the rulers of the synagogue, the, the chief officers of the synagogue. How are they going to feel about that? Well, if they believe in Jesus, they're going to be really excited. If they don't, they're going to be really unhappy, right? Because all of these people, I mean, this is a very successful uh, gospel presentation here. They're losing people and they're losing prominent women. That's just a big deal socially. Like you're more important if you have certain people attending all the time and you're less important if they go somewhere else, right? And then if all these other people go somewhere else, how do you deal with that? How do you respond to that? 
Well, Luke doesn't say they were angry, but we're going to see by their actions that they're angry. Instead, he goes to the root of that anger, and which is jealousy. So it's, it's a point of pride to lose that many people coming to your services because some guy came into town and you let him speak for three Sabbaths and now all of a sudden people are following him. So these are religious people, but they don't, they don't know the Lord. So they're, they're jealous. They're jealous of the loss of influence, the, the loss of prestige. And so hate is rising in their hearts and these synagogue leaders decide to act on that hate. So verse 5 it says, the Jews becoming jealous and taking some along some wicked men from the marketplace. Uh-oh, don't go get wicked men from the marketplace. That's, that's really bad. So um, they decide to create a riot, a, a, a big scene, a, a mob scene. They already had a mob scene in the last city they were in and now they're going to have another one. And they start by hiring these lowlifes um, from the marketplace. The agora is the, the word used there. The marketplace. It's a big open area where lowlifes kind of hang out. And Luke calls them wicked men. That's the, his name for them. So they give those guys a few coins and they say, we want you to make a scene. We want you to agitate. We want you to shout. Um, and they're given a plan. And the plan is to go to the house of Jason and drag Paul and Silas out of that house and bring them before the city the city ruler. So who's Jason? It's, it's not the guy that had the Argonauts and the Golden Fleece. That's not this Jason. It might be named after him, but he's, that's not it. So he's just the man hosting them. So back to verse 5 again. The Jews becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So Jason we're going to find out is just hosting Paul and his team, they're living at his house. But they aren't there. When they show up, they aren't there. Not at Jason's. So they have to switch to plan B. Take who is there, their supporters, and take them before the magistrates, and we know what to say. So, verse 6. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities. So the brethren would be converts, right? New Christians. These men who have upset the world have come here also. Wouldn't you like to be known as somebody who's upset the world? I, just kind of exciting. But um, they don't think that's a good thing. And Jason has welcomed them. So these are troublemakers, and he's opened their, his home to them, and they're staying with him. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. So there's some truth to that. It's a clever attack. And this is, in fact, it's the same one used against Christ himself, right? John chapter 19, when Pilate kind of wanted to let Jesus go, and um, it, it said, as a result of this, this is John 19, 12, Pilate made efforts to re release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. So when the letter gets back to Rome, it says, Pilate is supporting a king that opposes you. You can't do that. You can't handle that. And Pilate caved to what he knew was an injustice to protect his job. And in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi, the charges that the slavers used against Paul and, and Barnabas, these men are throwing our city into confusion being Jews. This is Acts 16, 20, and 21, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, 
being Romans. Remember, Philippi was a Roman colony. That's a Roman city, truly a Roman city. Here in Thessalonica, the charge is very specific. Not just that they're against our customs or they're being anti-Roman. It has to do with the message itself that Jesus is a king. And he's the coming king. And what someone might, uh, you might construe that as being anti-emperor. Even though Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And it's, it's, when he comes, it's not going to be like a battle. Uh, on, nobody's going to be a, a successfully opposing him. He's just going to establish his reign upon the earth. But um, they're not getting into that. They're just saying this guy is an anti-Caesar guy. He hates Claudius. He's a rival king to the emperor. So clever plan. So Jason and his people are dragged out before the city authorities. Now, stop story for a second. Move to segue. I've been doing that a lot lately, right? Little segues. So I've got to talk about Luke's word here. Um, when, when you read this section, there's a word that shows up, and it's the title that Luke uses for the city authorities. He calls them polytarchus, polytarchs. Now, people that don't like the Bible, you know, people, you never notice people like try to criticize the Bible and tear it down? They do that all the time. But um, years ago, like a hundred years ago or more, they would say, Luke is not accurate. He's not an accurate historian. And that one of the things they would point to is this. They would say, we've looked through all the literature that has survived from ancient times, and there is no mention of polytarchs. That's like, he, that's an invented thing. It shows he probably wasn't really there, that the apostles didn't, this is a made-up story, and that kind of thing. And then, some archaeologists <laughs> started digging in the ground. And if you go to the British Museum today, there's a very large block of marble and the label on that block of marble says this, from a Roman gateway at Thessalonica with an inscription that lists the civic officials, six polytarchs, the Tamias, the treasurer of the city, and the gymnasiarch. Gymnasium, like in Europe, you know, that's like high school. And so that was the guy that was the director of higher education. So um, several inscriptions since have been found mentioning polytarchs. In fact, there's over 60 other inscriptions mentioning them that have been found in that area. N it's true, nothing in literature, you know, most literature doesn't make it down through history, but what we had, it, it never mentioned them. But when you carve things in stone, it, it sticks around. And once you dig it up, so Luke, Luke was right. It's a very famous archaeologist named Sir William Ramsey. He's not a Christian, but he, he, he after they found some of these things, he started following Luke and saying, Luke is a perfect guide for history uh, because he's so accurate about all of these details uh, that are, just wanted to throw that out to you. Okay, back to our story. So, Jason and whoever was with him are dragged before the, the polytarchs, and the charge is potentially very serious. It's, it's meant to be something that would frighten you out of doing what you're doing. Just like the Taliban message went to that church um, yesterday. Uh, we know where you're meeting, and so, and, and we're coming for you. So, it's to make you stop. And so this is to scare Jason and the other people and say to them, you're opposing Caesar. And you know what the penalties are for that. So it's that kind of fear tactic. Of course, nobody was denying that Claudius was the emperor of Rome or trying to overthrow him. Again, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. But they're using that idea of Christ as the king. So the polytarchs, they're not, they're not like the leaders in Philippi. They're not hasty. They're not going to beat up Paul and Silas without a trial. In fact, Paul and Silas aren't even there. 
So they couldn't find them. So they're somewhere else. They're in another home or something like that when they showed up at the house, at Jason's house. So they don't seem interested in pressing charges against anybody. But they do want to stop an uproar because a city official, his main job is to keep the peace, right? So they don't want riots. They don't want uproar and all of this kind of stuff. So they come up with a plan, and their plan is to extract a pledge from Jason that he would send Paul and Silas away and that they would agree not to return. So verse 8, they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities, the polytarchs, who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. This pledge likely required a large financial payment. I mean, that was the idea. You pay this money, and if they leave and promise not to return, we'll give you that money back. So um, verse 10, the, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So it's okay. They've left behind a large church. They had three good Sabbaths of teaching there. And since some prominent Gentiles are at least sympathetic to the gospel, if not outright Christians now, the church does take hold in Thessalonica and it does well and it starts to grow despite opposition from the Jewish community in the synagogue. So we really get a sense that this new church's first year in, 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 um, after Paul had been there really did well. And we get that really from the, the, the letter Paul wrote. So we have two letters in the Bible to Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And Dan read earlier the chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. I want to read you another part of that letter. Just kind of keep in mind what we've just heard about all of this. I'm going to, I'm going to start reading. I, I can't read all of it, but I want to read most of it. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. I'm just going to start reading there. Just kind of tie yourself in. So he's been sent away. This is a little bit later, um, maybe a year or so later. And he's writing back to them. So he says, uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath will come upon them to the utmost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for, for a short time while in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. Verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? It is, is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we we're going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith 
for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. For this reason, brethren, in all of our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before God on your account. As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and to abound in love for one another and for all people just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Wow, I think. <laughs> That's what I say when I read that. What a beautiful summary of what it means to follow Christ and what the expectations are and the fruit, the fruit and the opposition and what it all really is all about. They were doing okay. So Paul sent Timothy to confirm and help as he could. So now back to chapter 17. So the missionaries um, leave and they go to Berea, which is about 60 miles away from Thessalonica. So they go south. They're off the Ignatian Way now. They're going through Sicily to go down to Berea. So they're working towards Greece. That's the direction they're going. So now in, in church jargon, if you've been a Christian and hung around churches for decades, you've probably heard about some Sunday school class or some Bible study or some group called the Bereans, right? Doesn't everybody name their Sunday school class the Berean? Have you been to the Bereans Fellowship today? They always say, some churches are named Berean, right? Why? Because of their response. Because of their response. These are solid, cool people. Verse 11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And I think he's mainly talking about the Jews there in Berea because he had a great response from the God-fearing Greeks, but the, the, the Jews were just jealous, right? They, they weren't concerned about spiritual things. They were concerned about their own reputations and influence and stuff like that. So these people didn't have a, a response of jealousy. They didn't have a response of fear. They weren't worried about their popularity or they weren't worried about anything like that, these Bereans. They just wanted to know if it was true. And if it was true, they wanted to be all in. Because if something's true, you should follow it. That's a principle of life. If something's true, you should follow it. And you know what that is? That's noble. You ever want to be noble? as the child of many commoners. <laughs> I don't even know what it's like to be noble. <laughs> but Luke actually uses that word here, but he doesn't mean noble in birth. He means noble of character. You know how noble came to mean great character. It's actually rare to be noble. That's, there's not a lot of noble people in the world, and I mean by character. And the mo boy, the modern Christian church could use Bereans like never before. because. The Bereans ask this. This is what makes them noble. What does the Bible say? That's their question. What does the Bible say? And if you can show me that that's what the Bible actually says, I will follow it. Now you can't just throw out a verse to a Berean. Oh, you know, the Bible says this. Because they'll say, well, let's look at the context of that. 
And so I want to see that in context, and I want to see what else the scriptures say on that particular topic that you're talking about. That, that's noble. That's a Berean. They want to know what the truth is. And, and being a noble-minded person like that, it's not a cold, intellectual kind of a thing. In fact, Luke is using emotional language here. How did, how did they do this? Did they examine the scriptures with a cold eye of reason? Is that what he says? With great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They just plunged into the Bible eagerly. That's an emotional word, and that's a good word if that's what you're doing with that emotion. It's an emotional response, but it's all positive. We should all, we should all be eager to know what God has said and what he means by what he said. Because God, the creator of all things, has spoken. It's amazing that people can even believe that God is the creator of all things and not really care what he's had to say. I mean, that's kind of amazing, right? That shows you how fallen human beings are. But if, the, if God, the creator, has spoken, I can't, I can't quite think of anything more important than that. Maybe the Cubs winning the World Series, but beyond that, no, even that pales. I grew up in the Midwest, so the Cubs were never winning, ever. How could there be anything more important than what God says? How could any book or film or idea or personality, how could anything be more important than God and what God says? I can't, I can't even imagine it. So the noble-minded seeks the truth and then they'll embrace the truth when they find it. They don't let their traditions get in the way, they don't let their heritage get in the way, or their mood, or their personal preferences, nothing like that. How much easier would it be for these Berean Jews to just say, hey, we're Jewish, we're not doing that. I was raised this way, I'm not doing that. My family is this, I can't, I'm not going to go there. That's not a noble way to think about things. These guys were noble. They prioritized the word of God, which is the only sure source of truth, and they, they measured what they heard, from the apostles even, by the written word. So Paul's making all these claims about Jesus, and they're pouring themselves into the Old Testament to see if those things are real. And they're finding out that they are. It is in there. And they're thrilled. That's why we have written revelation. Now I kind of identify with these guys. I'm not noble, but I've always been a truth seeker as long as I can remember. I was a stinker as a kid because of that sometimes. It's just the way I'm wired. I don't know why I'm wired that way, but I think God used the fact that I was, I had a bent that way. What is the truth? That, that's what I wanted to know. Um, to bring me to him. I mean, because he is the ultimate truth, right? Because for me, if, if you look at all the options of what, with all the claims of what is the truth of the world, and there's a lot of different claims. They kind of boil down to five or six simple things, but basically there's just all these claims out there about what reality is, what the truth is of the world, what's the most important thing, what's, what's it all about, that kind of question. And if you compare all of those claims, Jesus wins, hands down, no comparison, nothing like him. Absolutely answers all the questions. But if you're trapped by tradition or the culture I was born in or afraid of what my family might think or afraid of what my friends might say, you're not noble. You're not noble. You, you might cut yourself off from the truth for nothing, for things that won't last, for things that aren't very important. 
and, and cut yourself off from salvation. That would be really foolish to do that. To be faithful to my family tradition versus embracing what God has actually done. Because I just happen to be born over here. Truth comes first. Even after I became a Christian, I didn't change my nature, <laughs> that bent that I had. In fact, one of the first books I read after I came to Christ, one of the very first books was a book called Why I Am Not a Christian by Bertrand Russell, who was a very famous atheistic philosopher way back in the old days, even before, right before I was born. In fact, this book was written just a little bit before I was born. And I wasn't afraid to read it. And I, I read it with this in mind because um, well, I had two questions. Is he making a compelling case against the faith that I put in Jesus? Is he, can he make a compelling case against it? And the other question is, is he offering something better? Those are two good questions. Is he making a compelling case against what I believe? And is he offering something better? And the answers were really easy. No and no. I mean, his arguments were silly. I mean, it was actually lame. I mean, it was embarrassing. <laughs> this guy is a famous philosopher, a teacher, you know, he's one of the most famous men in the world. And he wrote that, he wrote that book. Well, you know what he actually, what it was all about? For him, the great truth of the world was free sex. I mean, that was really what it came down to. He just wanted to be as immoral as he wanted to be like everybody else. And, and, and so he, he came, he wrote that book in 1957. So he came a couple of decades after the first sexual revolution. And then he was right on the cusp of leading into the next sexual revolution, which happened in the 1960s. So um, he was sort of part of that. He was making it philosophically acceptable to have this sort of free sex thing, to free us from Victorian morality and all that kind of stuff, all this repression and all that. So he wrote this book then. Well, you know what? Sexual freedom is not the great truth of the world. <laughs> it just doesn't stack up. <laughs> That's not it. That's not the great truth of the world. In fact, that life causes a lot of misery between a few fleeting moments of elation and, and pleasure. It's a lot of misery. Does that, does that really compare, does sexual liberation really compare with the God of the Bible, this amazing God that we find in the Bible? Does it even compare with philosophical ideas like, like truth and goodness and beauty and mercy and artistic greatness? And he doesn't even talk about that stuff. He doesn't care anything. Here's the greatest philosopher of his day, supposedly. He doesn't care anything about the big questions like that. Does sexual freedom even begin to compare with the goodness and the wisdom of Jesus, who is really rather repressed sexually, we would say. No, it doesn't compare. And that's, but you know what? That is the main reason modern people reject Jesus, because they don't want to give up that kind of lifestyle. That really is the main reason. God spare us from making shallow pleasure the great reality that we live for. My goodness, how lame, how pathetic. And that's what pop culture tells us. What was the most popular song last year? I don't even want to, I can't even say what it was. But I found that, I found that Jesus is better than anything out there. That's what I found. And now it's more than 40 years later and it's still that way. There's nothing better. So I'm compelled, whether I'm noble or not, to pursue him put my trust in him. You know, I don't even, uh, these philosophers, they're really offering you a world without purpose. 
And I don't think a world without purpose would even invent Jesus, which makes me think all the more that he's the real thing, right? So, should you read unbelievers like that, like I did? Was that a dumb thing? <laughs> you, you can do it. And, and it's actually educational to know what they, what they argue are. But you have to be careful because, you know, they make these clever arguments that if, if you don't really think them through, they could be kind of deceptive and trick you. And s- Satan's greatest thing is deceit, right? It's not he has this compelling case to make. It's that he deceives people. So you have to be careful about that. And you can, you can read it. If, you're, if you've got a good, strong faith, you can read it for educational reasons. Otherwise, you can just sit down with somebody that knows their stuff and go through it with them and say, what do you think about this? What do you think about that argument? And that's fine. In fact, that's why we're here. So um, you can do that kind of thing. I'm always available. So I would say, never be afraid of the truth, but always be careful about being deceived. I would say that. That would be my rule. The noble-minded person seeks the truth. He's looking for the truth. And he thinks well. So God is the God of truth. He has spoken. I, I believe that more than anything else in the universe, that God is real and he has spoken. And once you know that, you can just pursue it, right? Imitate the noble-minded Berean. Whatever God says, make it yours. Make it yours. Let it shape you. So the Bereans find the gospel message compelling and consistent with scripture. And in Berea, many people come to Christ, Jews and Greeks, the noble-minded do. And so things are going great until verse 13. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, also, oh no, they're coming from Thessalonica. They came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. The guy, the, you know, the lowlifes in the marketplace, they must have made a good mon- bit of money that way. You guys come with us. We're going to go cause some trouble down there in Berea too. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul said there were going to be trials, didn't he? And he said, I told you about that. So it wouldn't have been a surprise to them. In fact, he said they endured the same sufferings as the Judean believers did at the hands of their own countrymen. That's what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians. So pressure continued at some level and Paul and Silas left there. And, and um, so they'd followed them to Berea. So the opposition in Berea seems to be on Paul. So they send him off. Verse 14. Immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. And Silas and Timothy remained there. So they weren't really after Silas and Timothy. So they're staying there to keep that church going and strong. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So we've got Luke left in Philippi. Silas and Timothy are left in Berea to watch over the churches. Paul is escorted to Athens, which is about 100 miles away. We don't know if he went on land or, sounds like he went by ship, if you read it that, you know, he went to the coast there. So he probably took ship to there. And then he tells the guys that took him down there, as soon as he sees Athens, he's like, go get me, go get me Silas and Timothy. This is the place. We're going to hit this place. And we'll look at that next time. Okay? Let's pray. (laughs) Father, we thank you so much for the great truths. We thank you for the example of the Bereans who were so wise. And we know, we know because of what happened to Lydia that you were opening their hearts. And that commitment they had to the truth was just the perfect thing. And Father, we just thank you for that. We thank you that you've made it so clear who you are, what the great truth of the world is, and it all centers around Jesus Christ. 
who saves us from our sins by his death and is coming again to establish righteousness on this very sin-sick world. We look forward to that. We offer you praise and glory in his name. Amen.